Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. My wonderful guest for today's episode is Dr. Hilary McBride. She is a new connection in my world, and I am just so delighted to be getting to know her. I am struck again and again by her ability to capture in such gentle and generous detail the challenges and joys of what it means to be human. Dr. Hilary McBride is a registered psychologist, a researcher, and a podcaster with expertise that includes working with trauma embodiment, perinatal mental health, and spirituality and mental health. Her first book, Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are, was published in 2017. She was the senior editor of the textbook Embodiment and Eating Disorders, Theory, Research, Prevention, and Treatment, which was published in 2018. And her most recent best-selling book, The Wisdom of Your Body, Finding Wholeness, Healing, and Connection Through Embodied Living, came out in the fall of 2021. She has been recognized by the American Psychological Association and the Canadian Psychological Association for her research and clinical work, and in 2017, for her research and clinical work in postpartum sexual health, she won the International Young Investigators Award for her research contributions that happened so early in her career. She teaches at the University of British Columbia and the University of Victoria. She is an ambassador for Sanctuary Mental Health and the host of CBC's award-winning podcast, Other People's Problems. Okay, so this conversation was incredibly grounding for me, and I suspect it's going to be for you as well. Hillary even guides us through a body and breathing exercise that I absolutely loved, and it's going to be one that you can keep in your toolkit to use in stressful or overwhelming moments. I think you're going to enjoy hearing her gentle insights. I know that you're going to enjoy this conversation. 
Hi, Dr. Hillary McBride. Hello, Dr. Alexander Solomon. It's so good to be with you. I'm so glad you're here. I really am. I am a huge fan of your work. You write so magnificently and your work on embodiment is like all the things I love. It's culturally inclusive, it's intersectional, it's feminist, it's thoughtful, it's necessary, it's user-friendly. It's just so good. So I I know that anybody who's listening to this conversation who does not know your work is going to become a huge fan. It's just all so good. Wow. Thank you so much for that vote of confidence and that praise. It feels so good to hear you say I respect your work so much. So it means a lot to me that you value mine too. Well, on Reimagining Love, we start from a place of honoring that we are both bodacious badasses and forever works in progress. So I would love to start by asking you the relational self-awareness question that I love to ask our guest experts. So Hillary, what is a growing edge that you're currently working on in one of your important relationships? And what has it been teaching you lately? I'm realizing that in some of my relationships with some of my family members, my family of origin family members, that it has been hard. It is still hard in certain ways for me to ask for some of the things that I need for fear that it will change the nature of the relationship and I'll, I'll lose some closeness with them. It's almost like I've learned and I've become aware with certain family members that it's easier to be close if I don't need something from them. It's easier to be close if I don't articulate that something doesn't feel good or that I want more or that I want less or something like that. So in a way that the closeness has become, it's kind of like a phony closeness. There is this illusion that there is actual connection, but I'm realizing that to have connection, I've had to cut parts of myself off. And so I'm trying to negotiate internally to find my voice in those relationships. It's scary and it's upsetting. And I'm also aware that some of these folks in my family have done some of their own work and that maybe the patterns that I have and the things that I expect are outdated. They're based on past versions of us, but don't necessarily represent who the people are today. So what that means is realizing that's valid, even if it doesn't reflect the current reality that that fear came from somewhere. But also my younger self is safe in, in the arms of the adult me. An adult me can negotiate with this new person in front of me who is not the same person as kind of the person who was there when those patterns formed. And I'm working on holding all of that, the fear, the ability to have a voice, to negotiate something new, to tend to myself and to feel like it takes me into these new places, helps me again, kind of access the vulnerability of so much of the work that happens for the people that you know, I work with clinically, it feels like, oh yeah, this is when we find those growing edges, it reminds us of just how scary it is to do something new or to do something over or to feel into those spaces of vulnerability. Well, it's just beautiful in so many ways. It's so deeply internal and relational. And like one part that really stood out to me as you were talking it through is like us learning how to tend to the younger versions of ourselves and feeling like we can do that. It is really, and I think sometimes we say, well, I can do this for myself in the relationships now, but I can't ever imagine doing my family of origin relationships differently. So we almost sometimes, I know I have done this, made little carve outs like, well, I can be this person over here, but you know, my family of origin, they could never get to know this me. It's an invitation slash challenge that our people sometimes have been doing, maybe not 
all of the work, maybe not the same kind of work, but if they have been doing enough work, we maybe don't even want to let ourselves kind of off the hook, even though it feels scary. And we may want to try little bites of, okay, might I let you get to know this healing me? And might I take the chance of getting to know the healing you? Right. You know, what's coming to mind is the, this is like a kind of a deep cut theoretically, but are you, have you read the article about the dinner party? This is like a a family of origin, family systems article. It's been so long. I'm probably going to misrepresent it, but the gist of it is that is that we go away from our families and all of a sudden we're kind of building this insight of who we want to be and who we wish we could have been with our family of origin. And the temptation is to go back into the environment with our parents and our siblings and to try to be completely the new self that we are, the adult self that we want to be, that we've worked hard to be. But actually that sets the, you know, sets the bar too high in a way because our programming is so deep that that it's really hard when our nervous system wants to default to going back into those interpersonal patterns. Maybe the expectation is that we can't be fully who we are now, but we can try for five minutes. Like we can start the five minutes of the interaction by representing ourself and or kind of staying connected to ourself or trying to remain tethered to what we know to be true about ourselves instead of expecting I'm for the entire dinner party, I'm going to be my wisest, most grounded self, maybe expecting just a tiny little snippet of that. It starts with one question or one statement, or maybe even before it it moves into the interpersonal space, it starts with me staying connected to the felt sense in my body and not abandoning myself. Even if I don't articulate it differently to someone, it means I just stay inhabited. I just stay with myself. And I think that that can help take the pressure off. At least it has for me, instead of doing it all perfectly, doing it all for the the extent of the time that we're together, just one little piece that we can work on, a bite. And then celebrating the heck out of that bite, right? Celebrating, landing, coding, savoring that we took the risk of showing up a bit differently, a bit more presently. We did that. We said that one thing differently than we would have back then, that lands for me, like this idea that if I've seen more, if I know more, if I understand more, if I feel more adult, then I have to do it 100% every time, everywhere in order to be quote unquote authentic. It's too much. It's too perfectionistic. When we're in that mode of like, I've got to show up with my family of origin as my most healed self. When we put that kind of pressure on ourselves, I think it also sets the stage for impatience and frustration and intolerance with the other people then. Like, don't you get it? I'm trying so hard. I'm using every tool in my new toolbox. And if you can't meet me where I am, then I'm going to become enraged or shut down or I'll flee or I'll pull back. So that, you know, the more we kind of crank up the expectation of ourselves, the less tolerant we can be with other people's responses to us. And it can imagine a world where it is too much for the family system to be able to take us all in all at once. So it's a kind of grace both for ourselves and for our loved ones who just are maybe going to need a hot minute, you know, to just kind of like adapt, adjust, you know, learn this new lingo, learn these new ways of being present with us. Oh. Yeah, that feels like such a generous gift to somebody else that we could give them the grace that we're also trying to give ourselves as we are making things different in the system. Like we don't have to do it perfectly and neither do they. 
I'm just aware that it takes one person, one person changing one small thing to shift or to begin to shift a dynamic in a family system. And so even if what we're doing, again, to make these like tiny small bites, like I'm saying this to myself as much as I'm saying this to everybody else, when we do one small thing different, even that the one small thing that we're doing different, again, is just staying inhabited in ourselves, that can be enough already to shift the dynamic. And sometimes the dynamic shift takes as long as it took to get created, right? For the dynamic to get created. And that can take a very, very long time. Often we want to rush really fast when we all of a sudden have the insight that things could be different or we have access to the resources. And it's actually when we slow things down and we are present and tuned into ourselves that we have access to way more resources than we would otherwise. So maybe this is just a reminder for myself. It's okay to take it slow. (laughs) There is a particular kind of pathology that lends itself to being an expert in mental health. And that is the expectation of well, because I know all of these things, I should be really good at them. Or because I know all of these things and I help other people with them. Why does this particular thing feel really stuck and hard for me? And it has been like such a journey for me in terms of remembering that the insights that we have aren't necessarily enough to generate change or the insights that we have aren't enough to give us the, the courage or the compassion to live out the complexity of our lives. That, that transformation isn't just new ideas. It's not just having, having the insight. So I'm curious about how that's landed for you as you've navigated this professional identity. A hundred percent. Absolutely. It's probably my surest route back to self-compassion. Like I know that I need to be practicing self-compassion when I notice myself going into that. Like I should know better. This shouldn't be hard. I'm like, oh, there's a moment where I need to practice self-compassion that this is Right. The undoing takes a long time and it takes practice. And it is not about cleverness because, my Lord, if it was about cleverness, I'd have it all licked by now. Right. I know how to map it all out, make it pretty. It is the embodied, which, as you were saying that, it was it was taking me to this quote from your book. I would love for you to to take us more deeply into which is that you write that the neuroscience of healing has proven to be true time and time again. Change does not happen through trying to trick ourselves out of a story we've been groomed to rehearse through our developing years. Rather, transformation happens from the ground up. When we have a new experience of ourselves and we hold our attention on it long enough for it to sink in. Can you help us understand that transformation from the ground up? Absolutely. So this takes stepping back a moment to to name a cultural myth that most of us have internalized without realizing. And that is that, that we think of ourselves primarily as thinking beings. And we come to that idea by no fault of our own. That's actually been handed to us through philosophy and politics and oppression and who has access to power and the ways that power is conferred socially And our misunderstandings of what I think fundamentally of the kind of the neuroscience and the phenomenology of being human. So we have this narrative that we are primarily thinking beings. And yet when we actually dig into what it is that makes the thinking parts of ourselves, they tend to sit structurally on top of our sensing, feeling, and experiencing parts of ourselves. In fact, it's been deeply transformational for me. And I say this kind of with an air of humor, but I really sincerely mean it. 
it's been deeply transformational for me to realize that there is way more information going from body to brain than there is from brain to body. And to see that the thinking parts of us are actually governed by these, what we might call subcortical or bottom-up structures and processes, like how our body is positioned, how our body is oriented in the world, how society has messaged back to us if our body is good or lovable or safe or unsafe or valued. If we've been touched, if we were held, kind of what access to movement and space we have, all of those things are constantly shaping our cognition. So if we think that we're only ever going to be able to change our inner experience by using thought alone, we're actually missing about 90% of the material and the real estate that we have access to that could nudge us in a different direction. I mean, simply shifting our posture is enough to shift our emotions, which is enough to change the way that our thoughts are produced from the emotion centers of our brain. So while thinking is an important part of our experience, and yes, thinking and embodied experience tend to work very well together when we, you know, sync them up and they're interrelated, we as a culture have really missed how much of our experience comes before the place of words, that comes before the place of our thinking selves. And it is when we get access to that, that we not only have way more available to us in terms of changing the way that we think and feel in the world, but we have way more available to us in terms of our sensuality, our felt experience of joy, of pleasure, of connection, of rootedness, of, I would say, even ancestry and spirituality, that all of that is available to us through the body. So that, that's kind of the framework that I want to situate this conversation in. But I think you already hit at something very important when you talked about changing these patterns in our family of origin and how we need to celebrate the heck out of that. When something different happens, giving our attention to it is the way that we tell our nervous system, hey, this is important. We can do this again. It is safe to be here. Because too often when changes happen, when they happen on an experiential level, because we're so fixated on our thinking selves and operating from our thinking selves, we don't even really notice those changes. And then it takes a different amount of time. And we know this, Rick Hansen, Dr. Rick Hansen's work has been really powerful in shaping our current working knowledge of this, but we know that it is easier and stickier for our nervous system and our cognition to integrate and learn information that either reinforces what we know or proves that we are unsafe or in danger. And we actually have to attribute a lot more energy and attention to the experiential to the positive, to the transformational for our nervous system to pick up that it's okay for that to be there and that we can keep doing that new thing that we're doing. So the ability to feel something different and then stay with it is kind of this like recipe for us to heal, recipe for us to be present and a recipe for us to have a little bit more agency in the way that we feel internally and how we move through the world. Mm-hmm. Because that's so important, why is it so damn hard for us to catch and notice and celebrate and savor what's good or what's different or what represents a little bit of change? You named the the biology of it, that we just code things that are frightening or familiar. We code those more strongly. So in order to notice something different, we are sort of needing to work against our nervous system or work differently with our nervous system. But it's also, I think, something about like for those of us who go hard, who are aspirational, who drive, it's hard to notice and celebrate what's different and good because it almost feels like, is that enough? Was it enough change to be worthy of celebration? Does that count? If I celebrate it, does that mean that I'm 
letting myself off the hook or there, there can be something about, right? What's our resistance to noticing the change, celebrating the change, coding the change, if it's so important, because it is, you're saying this is really important that we notice when we've done it differently, when we've created a bit more ease, a bit more safety, a bit of a difference in the conversation. It's so important that we notice it. Why is it so hard? Yeah. So this is where I default back to kind of my theory my theory of change, my working model around understanding our processes as people around emotion. I have to say that I think many of us have not learned how to actually feel good. We have been told in our families and in our cultures and in our communities of faith and in our you know, workplaces that feeling good is lazy. It makes us vulnerable. Uh, it's a waste of time. But that narrative that we're holding inside of ourselves that we say in response to that good feeling is not a narrative that originated from us. In fact, our nervous systems developmentally are wired to be able to flourish. We have this birthright of being able to feel pleasure and joy and presence. And yet somewhere along the way, we learned from one of those communities or stories or people that that would make us vulnerable, that that would create a problem, that somehow it would cost us belonging or connection or as for many people who experience joy and then something bad happened, we're going to put our guard down. We're going to feel good. And then we're going to lose our edge. And that's when we're really going to get hit with the bad news or the loss. We're going to get soft in some way. So I think that the resistance to that is something we've inherited. I don't think that's actually something that we need as people to have in order to thrive. In fact, I think Kristen Neff's work around compassion has been really helpful for me in understanding the way that actually when we are compassionate with ourselves, it's not that we get lazy or soft. We actually become more creative. We flourish. We have more capacity. We have more resources available to us. We tend to have more longevity in the work that we're doing. So really this story or the resistance that we have to celebrating is probably because we never learned how, or we were actually told it was a problem, or it was connected in some way to something scary that happened. But, and what do you think about it? I'm curious about your thoughts about where our resistance is to staying with what feels good. Well, all of that makes sense. I mean, as you're talking about it, I'm noticing all of the ways in which that still remains a growing edge for me, which is why when we do it, it is so subversive. We're subverting so much. It's making me think of a lot of the work that I'm seeing in the BIPOC community around rest as resistance, right? So it really is, it's not just healing our own little story in this generation, but the intergenerational story of the ancestors who came before us. It's, it's all, which is why it makes it hard to do and why it makes it important to do and powerful to do because it's not just changing our trajectory, but the whole trajectory of the culture. Right, exactly. And I think that's a big idea you're hitting on, that when we heal individually, we're also healing collectively. Because I think that there's a story for so many folks, perhaps not listeners of your podcast, although maybe including listeners of this podcast, that there's a, a fear or resistance to doing the inner work because we've been told on some level it's selfish or it takes us away from community or it's a waste of time. And so seeing the individual work as fruitful and as something that we then take that transformation back into our communities is one thing. But then the second thing is the work can include allowing ourselves to feel good. The work doesn't always have to be hard or the work doesn't always have to be painful. Although sometimes when we're bumping up against our programming and our resistances, 
it is difficult, even if the end result is meant that we feel joy and pleasure and rest. There is such thing, I think, as over-functioning in the self-healing space. There is such thing as over-functioning and like in working tirelessly to be good because somewhere along the way, we never learned that it was okay to actually stop and enjoy what it feels like to be us, including the progress we've made on our journeys of therapy or including the success that we've had. And the ability to, to slow down and sink into a moment of joy absolutely transforms our inner experience of ourselves. But like you're saying, it paves the way for others in our communities to have a wider story of what it means to be human, to have a story that includes this body being allowed to feel good. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they are not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. It begins in the body. That's what embodiment is, right? That is, and so your book, The Wisdom of the Body, finding healing, wholeness, and connection through embodied living. So embodiment is the experience of being a body in a social context. So we start by re-inhabiting our bodies. Is there a practice that you can lead us through right now? an embodiment practice that you love, that's a go-to, that could help us even as we listen and engage in this conversation that can take us into our bodies? Oh, I love this question. Thank you so much for asking. Okay, so I'm going to do two, but I'm going to make them short because I want to create a little, some options. So the first practice that I have would be for you and I together, we'll do this together, but as well for anyone who's listening, simply notice how you're sitting. Right, bringing our attention back into our posture, noticing the points of contact between our body and what we're touching. Maybe your feet are touching the ground, your bum is touching the chair, maybe you're leaning against the back of the chair or not, but simply turning our attention into the space inside of our body as it makes contact with the environment around us. And as we do that, giving ourselves a chance to notice what that's like sometimes, and I'm listening to your breathing, Alexander, as you're doing this, like sometimes... When we give ourselves a moment to drop into our bodies, things start to naturally correct themselves. There's almost like a really intuitive return to homeostasis. Our breathing changes. You know, we shift our posture and we go, oh, I didn't like how I was sitting. You're like, oh, I can't feel the floor. That's weird. Or why, why is my back so tight? There's something about just being in our bodies that invites us into a kind of self-corrective experience. So that's the first one. And the reason I start with that one is because I think that there's a lot of discourse out there in embodiment spaces that position embodiment as this thing that always looks like ecstatic dance or always looks like a kind of like 
eroticized movement, or it looks like, I don't know, something that has a ton of expression to it. And while I think that's one element of practicing being in a body and feeling into the edges of the ways that we like to move, being embodied is about being a body. And maybe your body wants to sit here. Maybe your body wants to move forward in the chair or lean back in the chair or have a glass of water. It doesn't always have to look like this kind of grandiose, unachievable thing. Because the other thing that we run into when we're talking about embodiment is the intersection between embodiment and ableism too. Like you're not only embodied if fill in the blank, you're running or you're doing yoga or you're dancing or you're having a profound ecstatic dance experience, right? This embodiment is about being in your body and having agency and being connected to your environment. That's the first one, just sensing in, right? It doesn't have to be fancy. It's available to everybody. Even if you use a mobility aid, even if you don't have access to great funds or space or whatever it is. Okay. So that's the first one. The second one, and this is my favorite, again, really simple and gentle See if you can sense in to what in your body feels good right now. So noticing an experience of pleasure, enjoyment, comfort, all the different ways that we say that something feels good when it feels good in our body. As you do that and you notice what feels pleasurable, enjoyable, comforting, safe, whatever the qualifier is. Again, see if you can hold your attention on that for a moment and invite that sensation, whatever it is, to expand just a little bit more, allowing it to take up just a little bit more room, maybe even adding to it a color or an image or a word, something that kind of thickens that experience and holds your attention on it even longer. So I would love to hear if you'd want to share what happened for you in that experience, what felt pleasurable in your body. In the first experience, I did exactly as you said, like I, as I noticed my body in my chair, I shifted a bit and I, you know, I felt like two pops in my back. It was an opportunity to kind of just like work something out a little bit, notice what was tight or what wasn't quite settled and my body shifted. It also was this like shift of perspective of the idea of I am this body, like this body, like this is me. That's so freaking cool, you know, like this same body is the body that my caregivers held. So much has changed within me and around me, but this body is the same body. Like it's that how simple it is to bring attention to the body then is like, oh my God, this body is me. Oh, I love that that happened for you. Thank you so much. What a massive piece of insight to have simply by bringing your attention in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then what happened? Well, the second one, what felt good was just all across my chest. And it was a sense of openness, warmth. The color was like a light pink. And then the word was open. Like it just, that was what was feeling good. It's like right in through here. And it was really easy to identify. It didn't, I scanned and then I really quickly identified that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love how easily it came to you. And I wonder if it had something to do with what had happened right before it, like, You'd have this moment of really connecting into yourself and the awe and the wonder of being a body and that it felt safe to be a body in that moment. Well, I was primed for it because I was reading your book. You know, I was tucked in on the couch last night next to our daughter reading your book. And it's your book is the biggest hug. Like you just write 
so beautifully, so gently. So I was primed coming into this conversation to feel in awe of my body and like, you know, open with you. So all of that. I would love to hear what your experience was. Mm, Thank you. I noticed as I was leading us through that, that it felt really good to feel my feet in my socks. I'm wearing this particularly fuzzy pair of socks. And I just noticed how it was like my feet as they were touching the ground beneath them through the material on the socks, like they were touching this really like cloud-like material and it felt gentle and easy and playful. And there was this experience of gentleness in my feet. What I didn't do here with you, but I often do internally that I'm reminding myself of now is that when we drop into this place of pleasure or we feel something in our body that feels good and we put a word to it, sometimes I ask my body to say, what are the words that go along with this sensation? Or like, what is it that you want perhaps my mind to know? What is it that you want the rest of me to know about being in this sensation or being here right now? And I felt like my feet in that moment said, Like just being here can be really good. And sometimes my feet say, if I touch it on my feet and they feel sturdy or I can feel a little bit of like, you know, pressure in my feet, that's often a place I go. My feet will say to me, you can leave or you have ways out or I'll take you where you need to go, right? There's a kind of awareness that my body is saying like, I'm ready to mobilize if you need that. But today right here in my feet and in this moment with you, it felt good just to be in the pleasure of touching the ground and to enjoy that. As you talk about listening to your feet and your feet communicating with you, it reminds me of this place in your book where you talk us through practices to become embodied. And one of them was, my body and my mind can be friends. And you talk about, just like you did just now, your feet giving you the message, it's okay to go, it's okay to be here, that they were talking to you. And in the book, you write that sometimes you even will use pronouns. Like you'll say, like if you feel your stomach grumbling, you'll say, "Uh uh-oh, she's telling me that I'm hungry. Like that idea of the body as a friend, it's so, it's a beautiful way because so often, I was going to say as women, I know that people of all genders do this, but there is something about our socialization as women that is the body as a forever fixer-upper project, a forever not quite right as it is, what a dramatic alternative that this body, in fact, is my friend. She talks to me. She tells me. She lets me know it's safe here or it's okay to go. It's time to eat, right? That that's to relate to the body as friend. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for bringing that in. And I think that fits really well into the nature of your work because so many of us as much as relationships are complicated, we have some framework about how to do connection. On some level, if you're an adult, you probably have some basic skills around how to be friends with somebody. You probably Hmm. know how to carry on a conversation, how to listen, how to at least show you're interested in someone, even if you're nervous about what will happen next. And whenever we can borrow from a skill set that we already have to help us develop something new to take us where we want to go, it's going to feel like we have to learn fewer skills to be able to get there. It's like this kind of knowledge translation or skill translation inside of us. And so 
When I think about embodiment, when it seems like this totally out there foreign concept, and most of us, as you said, have some degree of complexity in our relationship with our bodies. When we remember that we already have skills available to us, the ones that we use in relationship or parenting or friendship, and we could use those to be in connection with ourselves it feels perhaps a little bit less scary. Like maybe loving our bodies and the idea of total satisfaction with being a body, it feels a little out there. But maybe asking a question, what is it that you want me to know? Or can we spend some time together? Or what, what was it that you were trying to tell me earlier that I didn't listen to? Or, oh, you're hungry? Yeah, let's get some food. Right? Those might be things that feel less, like there are fewer barriers around them because we already do them day to day with other people. And this is just about doing them with ourselves, with our sensory selves, with our physical selves, with all of the data that is actually shaping what it means to be us. The other practice that really struck me was my body as a resource. And so you invite us to identify a context in which we felt a lack of freedom. And so the example you give is feeling our belly kind of spilling out over our jeans and then feeling shame about that. And instead of being critical of our body, being critical of the context that limited our freedom and that the story about your body made you feel shame about a body that had in fact done nothing wrong. And it was just the most magnificent reframe about the body having not done anything wrong in being restricted by these jeans, by this pair of shorts, whatever it is. Right, exactly. Oh, thank you. Again, thank you so much for highlighting that. That has been personally for me such a huge experience in my own healing. So for the listeners who don't know, I have a history of an eating disorder and I would put myself in the category of having been treatment resistant, namely because I feel like on some level the eating disorder was working for me. It's like Gabor Mate says about addiction, not why the addiction, but why the pain that the eating disorder was doing something to help me manage pain. It was doing something to help me feel like I had agency over my bodily self when there were so many other things around me that felt like they were taking agency from me. And I had so bought into this story that my body was bad and that my body needed to change in order for me to have power or control or some sort of safety or ownership that I really thought in some way that you know, when I started to work on that eating disorder, like maybe there was actually something wrong with me that I'd thought that, that I had felt the shame. Like there's something wrong with me that I have an eating disorder. I'll get you to stay with me on this because I know that for some people, this can be a little, not you necessarily, Alexander, but for those of you who are listening, it can be a little complex to hold this, but the eating disorder was working. It was the result of me being a good woman in our society. It was actually everything that I had been taught to do. And to realize that the hatred that I held inside of myself was not of my own doing, but it was something that had been planted inside me because of the context that I was in, helped me realize that I didn't have to hate myself. And I also didn't have to hate the eating disorder. I could see it for the function that it had in terms of its gift to me to feel like I had a way to manage what I previously didn't know how to manage. And all of that kind of displacing of the shame and the anger and the stories back to where they came from, which are these objectifying, sexualizing, patriarchal, white supremacist, fat phobic, right, ableist societies that we're in. I mean, I could go on and on and on. 
those are ideas that belong to those cultural hierarchies and to those values that are proliferated in the context we're in. Those are not things that I was born thinking or feeling about myself. And the ability to realize that I could relieve myself of the pressure of beating myself up, both for beating myself up and for, you know, having the eating disorder. And I could hand that back to where it came from, allowed me to see that that was actually the place where I had agency all along. That the place that I have agency is realizing I I can see the stories around me and choose not to participate them. And I can allow those stories to be existing around me, but I don't have to internalize them as being true about myself. If they feel like they surface inside, I get to go, oh, of course, how could they not? They're all around me all the time. Of course, I think that sometimes. Because I think, again, as we get on this journey to embodiment and body liberation and body positivity and healing, whatever you want to name the thing that's happening when we're trying to repair what it's like to be in our bodies, it is so easy for us to bring with us the kind of absolutism of, I have to love my body perfectly every single day, every single moment. And there's no room ever for critique or criticism or pain or judgment, because then I'm colluding with this narrative that's oppressive. And really what I want to say is, of course, we would pick up some of those things and they would take a a long time to get out of us. And of course, we would learn to speak the cultural language because that's the context we're in. And if we find ourselves kind of habitually repeating some of those stories, of course, that's not another reason to beat ourselves up. That's proof that we are in context, that we are in community. Well, it is a radically different way of meeting an old symptom or an old coping strategy by saying, ah, of course you're showing up right now, or of course here you are, versus, uh-oh, oh my gosh, I'm relapsing. What's wrong with me? Why is this happening? It's a very, very different way of meeting an old visitor that creeps up, right? Because our healing always is like that, right? There's always like, there's a return. There's an old pattern. There's an old urge. There's, I don't know that we ever have to be done, but what you're inviting us into is a very different relationship with the emergence of an old pattern or an old symptom. Thank you for sharing with us about your experience and your journey, especially around eating disorder, because I know that it. It just is a huge offering for people who are listening, who, you know, who have struggled and are struggling now with body image and eating and any sort of thing that we label as a mental health challenge or a diagnosis. It's always worthy of our nuanced and careful and gentle attention to who benefits from this way of thinking and how did I internalize something that I was not born with, that does not serve me, that does not show that I am broken but that shows the ways in which these systems are dysfunctional. Something else that struck me so much in your book, which I think builds from what we were saying before about the, our bodies as our friends, is that so much of rebuilding our relationship with our bodies and becoming embodied is so similar to intimate partnership, to loving another person, like being part of a couple I love that part about knowing how to repair, knowing how to make apology, knowing how to listen deeply. I just thought that's cool as hell because it just landed so deeply for me again around a healthy relationship with body 
has so many parallels to healthy relationship with part. And I think the arrow then goes in both directions, right? Knowing that as I build a healthy relationship with my partner, it gives me opportunities to wonder about if I can love my partner like that, how can I love myself like that? As well as the other direction of loving myself like that then opens me to loving a partner like that in ways that make repair, that offer deep listening, that offer gentleness and compassion. Can you tell us more about that part where the, of the parallel? We kind of touched on it a little bit already, but that there are these skills that most of us know already, or at least are working on, or perhaps we have a little bit more familiarity with because we've been in a relationship, we've thought, whoa, I never saw my parents resolve a conflict. I need to learn how to do that. Or wow, repair is part of attachment. Okay, I'm going to figure out how. So the idea is that we're probably trying to export the skills that perhaps we've done a little bit of work around to repair connection with ourselves. But I, I think the extra piece that you're adding in, which is so important, is that when we know how to hold safety inside of ourselves, it allows us to take risks in relationships. It allows us to be vulnerable. It allows us to try to do the thing that feels a little scary, but is important to say, I'm sorry first, or tell me more what you mean by that. Because if we can hold the complexity of our own story and know that we are witnessing ourselves, that we are safe with ourselves, that we won't abandon ourselves, it allows us to feel like we have a home inside of us that we can take anywhere, into any space, into any conversation, and into any context. I think I don't know what else to say, except just that there's a parallel process here, right? Like these are impacting each other. And of course, when we have safety in relationship, when we have secure attachment with a partner, when we have relational context around us that allows us to be curious and bold and brave, it allows us to plumb the depths of the places inside of ourselves that perhaps have been painful to access and might allow us to tolerate feeling things that we would otherwise be unable to feel. So if I have my, you know, my husband next to me, who I'm deeply securely attached to, I know that I'm going to be able to feel the intensity and the edges and the very hot core of my grief because he's going to be right there with me as I sense into what that feels like in my body, and I know he's not going anywhere. So it supports me, it resources me to stay with my process in my body and vice versa. I can stay with him. I can stay in the conflict between us. I could stay in the thing that's unresolved when I can hold the intensity of what I'm feeling and I don't need to shut him down to make what's happening in my body feel better, to make it go away. Your book ends with you sharing a letter that you wrote to your body. Anybody who has not yet gotten your book needs to get the book. Just even just to read that letter, it's so freaking beautiful. And you give us, you know, you invite us to write a letter to our body that is full, uh, you know, that begins, dear body, and that includes these kinds of relational repair invitations. I'm sorry, dot, dot, dot. I appreciate you for dot, dot, dot. I love you because dot, 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 that practice of a love letter to the body or an apology letter to the body, to our body was so beautiful. It was a beautiful way to end your book. I'm so glad that you shared that with us. Thank you. Yeah, it's deeply, deeply personal for me, that letter. And it was never intended to be shared when I wrote it. And so it was me to me, like a letter to a lover. And yet 
I've realized that there is something that touches so many people about realizing that this kind of love letter to myself supports them to negotiate relationship with their own body in that way. So I am so grateful. And my hope is that for everyone who reads it, that they write their own and they write their own again and again and again. And it becomes a regular practice of meeting yourself, of appreciation, of building relationship, just like we would in any other relationship. You don't go on one date. You don't write one letter. You don't say, I love you once, right? There is this habitual practice of tell me more. I see you. I appreciate you. I noticed what you did there. This must be hard for you. Tell me about it. Like those are the kinds of things that we do in relationship that when we do them with our body, take us into a more satisfying, rich experience of being here. Okay. So where do you want to send people? Because I know that anybody who's listening is like, all right, well, that was a little appetizer. Where am I going next with Dr. Hillary McBride? So where... Where can people find you? What's the best sort of entryway into your realm? Yeah, so I regularly share things that I'm thinking about or working on on social media. So on Instagram, Hillary Leanna McBride, on Twitter at Hillary L. McBride. And then I've got a website, HillaryLMcBride.com or various podcasts. I am recording and putting things out all the time. So I imagine if you just put my name in on wherever you get your podcast, you'll come up with all sorts of goodies, including a podcast that we we don't have any new seasons out right now, but had four seasons of something called Other People's Problems, which is about me doing therapy with patients, old episodes of the Liturgist podcast, and some new things I'm working on related to trauma are about to come out soon. So stay tuned for those. Good. It's a wonderful time mm-hmm. then to follow you and to get familiar with your work so that we are primed and ready for what's coming up next. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad that you were here. I loved this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Me too. Thank you for your thoughtful questions and making space for my work and really capturing so much of what is precious and dear to me about this this book, this project. It means so much to me. Yeah, to have your interest in my work and to be able to connect with your audience in this way. Really, I really appreciate it. Well, until our paths cross again, because I know that they will, I definitely want them to. So until next time. That's right. I feel the same way. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Hillary, for reminding us that we are our bodies and that checking in and connecting with our bodies is just as important as checking in with our minds and with our spirits. You can dive deeper into all of Dr. Hillary's wonderful work by checking out her books, her podcast, and more. All of that is linked for you in the show notes. Take care. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.